welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. I'm here with the legend, Peter <laughs> Curtinbach. Hi, Sam. How are you doing, man? Good, good. Uh, as well as anyone could be doing during uh, these trying times, but I'm staying sane by doing the These Trying Times drinking game, which is anytime you're watching live television, anytime a commercial comes on and mentions These Trying Times, you got to drink and you get sloshed real quick. Well, you've got the, to quote David Kahn, manna from heaven that was <laughs> the NFL draft this yeah. weekend. And God, I did too. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. I was more tuned into the NFL draft. I had like money on props. Like I yeah. was all in on the NFL draft this weekend. I watched like Bleacher Reports coverage. Of the I heard NFL it was really draft. good. It was really good. Like Matt Miller and Connor Rogers are really good. Like yeah. I kind of want to like talk to them and like try and pick their brain and be like, you know, is there anything I can add to their, or add to my knowledge just by like talking to them about the way mm-hmm. that they go about things. Um, it was really, really good. Lefko is great. He was there the first two nights too. Right. Um, but like, I was so locked into them, like even fourth and fifth rounds. I was mm-hmm. like, yes, I love it. Why is Bradley and I falling? Why? <laughs> like I was just like losing my mind, uh, super engaged in this thing. And we needed we needed some sort of sporting event, and I'm glad we got one. It was beautiful to enter an event not knowing the outcome of something, knowing that no one knew the full outcome of something, and the amount yeah. of text message chains I had going. Um, it just felt like old times again. Like yeah, obviously, you know, we're all staying connected in, in our own ways and you know, the general texts back and forth, but without sort of these external actions precipitating, you know, contact, like it was just not stuff happening. So what is there to reach out about this or that? Um, it was really great to kind of get the chains going again, to feel uh, like something dynamic and interesting was happening. That wasn't a pandemic. And uh, I don't know, as, as much as a pessimist as I am in everything in my life and certainly have found plenty of pessimism, uh, pessimism to be a, a, a viable emotion and uh, state of mind during this pandemic. Um, the way that the ease in which the, the draft seemed to be held, um, the intimacy of, of the entire situation, the ability uh, on a personal level to just be able to dive into something really deep, like the fact that there was nothing else going on allowed me to completely nerd out about the draft, which is something I really enjoy doing and, and hope to do again. And um but, yeah, it was just – there's reason to believe that we're going to get something back soon, that the NFL draft will, won't stand alone for months on end. And, um, yeah, it, oh, just, like it, it felt good to have back in sports a month, back. Right? I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine why we wouldn't have golf back uh, relatively soon in tennis, and we're going to get Fight Island. Um, but like, in Fight fate, Island is real. Fight Island is real, and they are going to be pumping out the content because Dana White does not care – about anything. And you know what? More power to him. Sign the waiver. Let's do this thing. Um, it's unbelievable. It's that they're be having great. Fights. It's, it's unreal. Is it, is it the smart thing to do? Well, let's start with the fact that it's UFC. None of this was ever a smart thing to do. So why, why stop there? Um, but I think we're going to get baseball back here probably by the 4th of July. And that's not to say that, you know, it, it should be back or that it's healthy or whatever, but, um, Business is business. We, we know this country runs on, <laughs> on businesses and corporations and baseball and hockey. They're, they're looking to get back in on this thing ASAP. There's, there's some market share to be had, and they're, they're trying to capitalize. So um, 
I, I think that, you know, at least in the sporting landscape, uh, we're going to get back to a, something, something. I don't know if it'll be anything remotely close to normal, but we'll get back to something soon. I think the NFL draft showed that, uh, that it's possible to, to pivot and, and, you know, try new stuff and get weird and that it, it's going to be a-okay and people will respond to it more than anything else. Yeah, I totally agree. And maybe we'll give some takes on the NFL draft at the end of the podcast here. Cool. But the couple of things I want to talk about on this podcast in general are first, we're going to talk about this new G League initiative mm-hmm. into the decision of high school kids going to the G League now and getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so because Adam Silver thinks it's a good idea for this to happen. Hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about The Last Dance, which is a fascinating, weird, stylized, almost monstrosity and like <laughs> incredibly entertaining, beautiful documentary uh, about Michael Jordan and the 1998 Bulls. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit about this poll that Tim Bond Temps put up mm-hmm. about, you know, prospects – across the NBA that you would want to start your franchise with. So let's start with the G League initiative thing. So it comes out. The reason that we haven't had a podcast in a while is that, A, I turned 30. I joined you in the ranks of being 30. Giddy up. Uh, on the day that Jalen Green announced that he was <laughs> going down this professional G League pathway. And you never uh, and felt the, older. And the day that uh, – the whole idea of this G League pathway was announced where they're not going to play in the G League. It's not going to be like they're allocating Jalen Green to a team. They're going to be just having these kids hang out in Southern California, getting better at basketball, teaching them life skills, everything that goes into that instead of playing really high level college basketball. And I can give some background a little bit on that so like I kind of got an inkling that this was going to happen like a couple days before so on let's say like April 14th and even on the 16th the day that Green announced I was still like texting and calling like G League general managers and G League assistant general managers and like guys on the team level asking them yeah like what do you know about this program And the level of uncertainty about it, even among those people, was pretty bizarre to me. Uh, They they thought there was still a chance that, like, they were going to be allocated these kids on their rosters and were concerned Mm -hmm. about, like, having to care for an 18-year-old for a year and, like, having to deal with an 18-year-old's development that, you know, frankly, you don't have, uh, you know, player rights to uh, in regard to having them on the NBA team. So how do you go about developing him? Do you uh, prioritize his development over the course of your older players? Do you just make it a meritocracy? Like there were a lot of concerns going on within G League front offices among people I talked to. And that is, I think one of the interesting ways to frame this entire thing, I kind of feel like it's flying a little bit by the seat of its pants. Like Mm -hmm. they wanted the headline of Jalen green, potential number one overall pick is passing up college to go play professional basketball 
with the G League, not necessarily in the G League. Because essentially this thing is going to act as an academy. And the NBA academy system has all of these, uh, you know, locations in India and in China. I think there's one in Australia. There's definitely one in Africa where they try and identify the best players and put them in a situation to succeed. The thing is that in those countries – there isn't a basketball infrastructure that already exists developing players well. Right. In many of them, at least. Like, Australia is a bit of a different beast, and I think China is a little bit ahead of the other two. But in the NBA and in America, college basketball does exist. And I have heard some questions as to why the NBA feels like it wants to get involved in the development of younger players when this ecosystem already exists. Like I can tell you that there are scouts, general managers, you know, high level executives, et cetera, that I've talked to that are like, I don't really know why we're subsidizing this because like housing Jalen Green, Isaiah Todd, Deshaun Nix, the former commitment to UCLA, decided to commit to this program today. So we're up to three. We're up over a million dollars committed already um, to house these kids, to pay for trainers, to pay for food, um, to pay the rental for whatever place they decide to go with to house these kids from a training perspective, even like the Mamba Academy is a really great option out here in Southern California. Like this is going to be an eight figure expenditure. (laughs) That you're going to have to sell owners on being like, yeah, I'm willing to write the check, you know, for $300,000 along with my 30 other owners to subsidize this thing. And, you know, maybe they find a way to get, you know, for instance, like Gatorade involved. Like, I don't know if Gatorade's involved in maybe paying these kids just because they want the publicity for the G League because the G and the G League stands for Gatorade. Like, I'm just speculating here, but maybe they decided that they'd be willing to kick some money in. Maybe someone like um, a shoe company decided to kick some money in because they think it's good to get these kids away from colleges. Why they would want to do that when they already sponsor the apparel for many of these colleges, I'm not entirely sure. But I'm just kind of throwing things at the wall. Yeah, in terms of like who's going to pay for this. And I'm just very – I don't want to say I'm skeptical because I think it's good that there is now like a somewhat well-formulated pathway for these kids to get paid legally um, by the basketball community writ large Mm -hmm. to play basketball. I am just like a little bit hesitant on the way that it has been formulated so far, I guess is the way to put it. And that's just a straight up hot mess and no one seems to have answers and they're kind of doing it by the seat of their pants. It's like, I don't even know if, I don't even know if it's like by the seat of their pants, but like it feels, it feels like everything isn't quite set up in the way it needed to be. And they're just kind of offering these kids like I've, talked to plenty of, you know, handlers for kids and, uh, you know, agents that have, you know, that are connected with kids that like have been floated the idea of the G League. And it's a lot of them are saying no because they 
still see value in building their brand in college basketball and potentially being able to sign a bigger shoe deal somewhere else. But I'm just, I'm not sure yet that this is the best, most valuable route for these kids. I'm glad it exists and I'm glad that um, kids that don't want to have to deal with the collegiate atmosphere are going to get an opportunity to go down this road. I'm just going to be very interested to see how it all plays out because um, there are just a lot of, there are a lot of factors at play here. Let me ask you this. Who do you think the NBA feels threatened by here? Because this as much as everyone likes to skew it as a goodness of their heart thing and trying to create another path. Like that's not really how businesses are run, especially when you're giving out hundreds of thousands of dollars. So who, who do they feel threatened by? I don't know that it's threatened. I think that they just wouldn't mind taking a chunk out of college basketball, potentially. If that's the case, and I think that on some level it may be, just from like kind of talking with people around the league, mm-hmm. um, if that's the case, it, like they're literally recruiting kids that are signed by college basketball teams. Like Daisha and Nix had signed his letter of intent to go to UCLA. Right. Um, I think it's short-sighted to do that because you can certainly reduce college basketball and you can minimize its specter and you can minimize the newsworthiness of it. So for instance, like I'll be on the lead tomorrow, the athletics podcast Mm -hmm. talking about this entire initiative, right? With Kavitha Davidson. And like something Kavitha told me was just like, yeah, we haven't had a college basketball topic yet this year since we've started the lead just because there hasn't been anything newsworthy. And I think that that goes into the talent drain that I've talked about on this podcast before. College basketball just was weak this year. It wasn't a great freshman class. A lot of the good Mm -hmm. freshmen decided to go pro in Australia or sit out like James Wiseman. All of these upperclassmen had decided to leave early. And this was the year where college basketball really felt it, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. So you can hinder the newsworthiness, but at the end of the day, unless you're like killing the NCAA tournament, which will never happen, right? there's still going to be interest in college basketball because the NCAA tournament is still by far the most valuable property basically in sports outside of the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, at least in America. I mean, like maybe you can make a case for the Champions League final. Maybe you can make a case for like the cricket final or something like it's, that. It's, it's, a top, but, it's a top 10 worldwide, if not top five worldwide sports property. Right. So you're never going to kill that, I don't think, because fans want to be able to take off work on a Thursday and Friday, drink beer with their friends at noon. Mm-hmm and watch basketball and gamble on basketball. Like, that's not changing anytime soon. So I don't think you're going to be able to take a big enough chunk out of college basketball, if that's the goal, to make expending eight figures worth of value a worthwhile proposition. Now, you know, maybe Adam Silver thinks that they can develop kids better than colleges can. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be interested to see that. Like, I, I just don't know just if they're feels, going to be able to. It feels like a, a, a strange tangent. just feels like, you know, it's, there's so many other things that the NBA could spend time and effort and money on. And this one just feels petty, almost. Uh, I'm like, not really again, sure what and it it's feels, about. And it feels judicious, too. In a way, like it feels like 
we finally created a way for the elite basketball players in high school in this country to get paid. And again, I'm glad it exists, but you it get paid, is just get paid in a, this like country, the mechanics the behind it don't totally add up to me, I guess is the way to put it. My my thought is that I think that they were fearing that the NBL or perhaps European leagues were going to start getting talent over there and it was going to mess up their pipeline in ways because if those other teams yeah. started giving out serious money, well, then I might stick around for two or three years. <laughs> you know, I, I, might, I don't think they can give out enough money. Like the NBL, I don't think can give out right. enough no, money. No, that's fair. I don't, but it, you know, I don't you, think that like even I guess maybe Spain could, but I don't think they would. I don't think they would. But still, um, it does undercut perhaps just the optics of the NBA yes. being – the, the preeminent basketball league, and that's without dispute, but when high school teens in the, in the U.S., top-ranked high school teens, are like, I'm going to Australia, or I'm going to China, uh, or I'm going to Italy, you know, Brandon Jennings, Moody A, R.J. Barrett, LaMelo Ball, like when, when you have to go overseas, I don't know, it might be just a patriotic play. <laughs> Just we're going to keep these guys in the U.S. Uh, we're going to keep them in North America so that that for whatever reason. Um, but the, I, I well, here's here's I think yeah. that plays a role. And I think that the fact that the one and done negotiations have not gone like super well. Right. Right. Uh, that makes sense. Also plays a role because here's an olive branch. Well, yeah, I think it's like an olive branch to these kids that want to be able to turn pro. But more than that, like, I think it's – you just look at the mechanics of who's involved in negotiating the end of the one and done. The NBA doesn't want the end of the one and done mm-hmm. because it's easier for them to evaluate younger players in highly competitive atmospheres in college, and it makes more sense for that world to continue, right? Yeah. Uh, you're not making – you are less likely to make poor investments – such as like in duty Ebby going in the first round to Minnesota, mm-hmm. than you are if they go to college and maybe get exposed. They would love it if they could get two or three, but that's just not reasonable. But on where the they were coming from, on the players side, so like the NBA isn't going to argue for it. The players aren't going to argue for it either. I don't think because at the end of the day, the people who run the players' association typically are veteran players. Mm-hmm. Who are either stars such as Chris Paul, Kyrie Irving's a vice president now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could name a bunch of them, or they're veterans like Roger Mason used to be, mm-hmm. right? And these guys don't want to have six or seven of their veteran contracts handed out instead to eighteen and nineteen year olds mm-hmm. because that's just not a valuable allocation for them, of guys who have deserved the right to get paid to play basketball, have earned the right to get paid to play basketball. So nobody on that side is arguing for it. Nobody on the NBA side is arguing for it. So I think that, like, we're kind of at an impasse unless the NBPA is just like, look, it's the right thing to do. We're willing to do it, right? Which it very well might. might, uh, They might woke themselves out of some jobs. Sure. But like, I'm skeptical of that. So like, maybe this is just like the olive branch to do it. And like, here's the thing too. Like I kind of mentioned that, you know, NBA teams like this college 
route Mm -hmm. because it gives them an opportunity to evaluate players and thus makes it less likely for them to make mistakes on players. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it doesn't doesn't cost the NBA anything, which is the operative thing. The NFL's never college football will continue to exist in this country because the NFL loves college football so much. If it has to maybe subsidize it down the line, they'll, they'll consider it. But a bunch of boosters in, in Birmingham, Alabama paying for a minor league football is the best thing that ever happened. And I think right. the, the same can be applied to, to the NBA on a smaller scale. And, like, I've talked to a lot of NBA personnel at this stage, and very few of them don't think that this is going to make their life harder. The um, new G League process the new G League initiative and the reason that they say that is a they have a way that they go about getting intel on these prospects already Mm -hmm. and this totally upends that so they're gonna have to create new networks in terms of how they gather information on these kids by the way the NBA has to create new networks of the people who are going to actually take care of these kids and facilitate their growth and all that stuff so maybe it's an easy network to develop but like again there's no but that's different. Like it's something that's different, and For there's sure. no yeah, there's no like statistical database on how to evaluate how a kid performs 100%. in the in G League practices against you know other players in practice settings versus in the SEC in hyper competitive basketball settings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Second feeds into that point. A lot of these kids are just the elite of the elite when they play high school basketball. They haven't been, like, proverbially punched in the mouth yet Mm -hmm. and faced adversity on the basketball court yet until they get to college. Some of them, like Jalen Green, that kid's not going to face adversity even in college because he's just a fucking monster. Well, I mean, it comes down to when when do you get to play full-grown men? And it sounds like they're not going to get to play full-grown men here with this G League thing. Isaiah Todd, Deshen Nix, these are guys that could have – legitimately gotten value mm-hmm. out of facing very competitive atmospheres of older players by four years that have been in strength training programs that are stronger than them mm-hmm. that can legitimately like push them around and make them face adversity. Now these evaluators are going to have to make decisions based off of kids, based off of what we know so far with this program where they're going to play exhibitions against G league teams. Maybe they're going to play other NBA academies. They might play some other professional teams, but none of it is going to be in like a highly competitive atmosphere because you're not playing for anything. You're just playing for, you know, yourself getting Mm -hmm. drafted higher. Right. So it's going to be harder for evaluators to make decisions. Now, like me personally, based off of my moral stance, again, I'm glad it exists, and I don't really care that NBA evaluators' lives, such as my own and (laughs) such as people that work for NBA teams, I don't care that that existence is now more difficult or made more frustrating by this. Right. I just find the incentive structure very strange with it. Like, I'm just very thrown by why Adam Silver wants to go down this road, I guess. Yeah, that that's maybe maybe there's a grand rationale that becomes clear at the end, but right now it seems like they're really scrambling to put together something 
that it doesn't make much sense as to why they're putting it together. So that, that's why I kind of go back to who are they afraid of? Um, because again, the college system works out really well. It doesn't cost them anything, creates high level right. competition. It's a beautiful minor league. Uh, it's going to stay relevant. You know, you don't have to, you know, subsidize it through back channels or directly. It's, it's a, it's a pretty great situation. And uh, yeah, it's going through some problems and all, and that's just PR problems more than anything else. But uh, yeah, it's all it's all very peculiar. I'm interested to see how this how this goes because truth be told, I mean, I think once you open up this route, it's kind of hard to stop doing it, right? <laughs> it take a lot of yeah, effort. I agree. Like you kind of opened up Pandora's box here, and maybe it all works out. Maybe they figure it out. But um, again, just a just kind of a peculiarity to all of it that usually doesn't come along with something this big. Usually there's a much clearer plan when you're doing something this uh, theoretically paradigm changing. So uh, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I don't know. It's all just very weird to me. Um, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad that these kids are going to get paid. Um, I'm glad they don't have to go to school if they don't want to go to school. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is too, that the G league is going to give scholarships to all of these kids, so they're going to be able to go to college later in life for free. Right. So I think that that's a really great, important aspect of this. Um, but <laughs> still, I'm just going to be very interested to see how it all plays out, because I'm not entirely sold yet that this thing is a better option for all of the stakeholders I mean, than she... college. Especially when you're talking in, like, we haven't even talked about the player side of it, just because... Like Jalen Green, I wonder if he could have exceeded the value of his shoe deal by going to Memphis for a year. Mm -hmm. Like if he could have exceeded the value of his pre-draft shoe deal by more than $500,000 per season right? by going to Memphis, being on TV every year, building notoriety about his game and dunking all over the place because he's an exceptional, you know, unbelievable player. Just playing the long con. Yeah, playing the long game. Like, I just wonder if it's even best long term for these kids. But um, I'll be interested to see what kind of deals um, in terms of endorsements that these kids get, because I'm not entirely sure there yet either. Um, It'll be interesting. Let's move on. Let's talk about the last dance. Yeah. I'm just going to give you the floor because you grew up in Chicago. You were like, what, probably 10 years old when they won the last title? Yeah. So this is, I'm this just going to give you the floor. Are you enjoying reminiscing about your Chicago Bulls uh, while watching The Last Dance? Yeah, yeah. As we've talked about over the last couple of days, couple of weeks, um, I am the wheelhouse here. I mean, this is this is extremely my shit. Um, as somebody who's consumed a tremendous amount of Jordan documentaries and Bulls documentaries and books and YouTube videos and all that content. Uh, just on a regular basis, getting something as theoretically polished as this, as um, as it, it's not even theoretical. Like it is very, it's polished, very polished and it's, very stylized. Yeah. It's really, really well made. I don't know if it's all that. It's awesome. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sure it's the be all to end all as of right now. Um, it's more awesome than it is good. Right, like you they, know what I mean. They got like, all of the names, all of the interviews. They have so much footage that even someone like me hasn't seen. You know, some of it, um, but it, it feels it feels a little dragged out at times 
truth be told. Yeah. It feels like they really tried to get 10 episodes out of it, whereas, like, if you did this as three or four, holy shit, just bangers. Just You just play only play the hits, and so that we don't have to kind of drag through on some B-roll and talk it out. But um, it's it's fantastic. It, it, re- it really is. Um, my general thought is I, I need to start seeing in these next couple of episodes the inherent conflict, the behind-the-scenes stuff with Jordan in practice, the stuff that we really – that you couldn't easily amalgamate based off of just everything that's already public domain, uh, that, that you wouldn't get out of reading the Jordan rules and all that. Um, See, it, that's – that's where I'm at too. Like I want to see more that I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have seen much that we don't know. Like I think the third episode was like a really great encapsulation of that. Mm-hmm. They really just kind of went like surface level on Dennis Rodman. Right. It would be great if we were to not just teach everybody what Dennis Rodman is, but I understand the need for it because it is a Netflix audience that's eventually going to be watching this. It's not going to be just the ESPN sports fan audience. And Michael Jordan has such a cachet that I do think that it it will become an inherently mainstream thing. This is an issue that I think all of us as sports fans have an issue with, or sorry, that, that really struggle with, which is what is sports mainstream is not regular person mainstream. And there's plenty of pop culture crossover, but it is a very clear differential. A lot of people in this country don't care about sports. The difference is there's a lot of people who care about it more than they should. And so there will always be a a, a strong market and you can have as many sports networks as we have and as many sports outlets as we have. And there's a sports section in the newspapers and all this stuff. Um, And they will continue to make money even during these quote unquote trying times. But, uh, especially for international audiences, uh, I'm thinking like UK, because um, right now that's where it's airing. Uh, it's ESPN in the States day after, so Mondays in the UK and in Ireland and in Europe and, and pretty much everywhere around the world with Netflix, it goes live that day. So they, I, I get, I get why maybe the scope of the documentary is a little bit wider. Uh, that they're they're taking a broader view of it all. That said, it, 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 there's enough nostalgia there for somebody like me to where I can get through it. If but if it doesn't start picking up, I can very well see people just being like, "Yeah, we get it." And and I, given the fact that we have nothing else going on, the fact that that's a thought is interesting. Because had this been going on, I believe it was supposed to be during the finals. It was supposed to be in June, right? Yeah. So this was sort of the gap programming between NBA Finals games. I'm not sure people would have stuck around after the Dennis Rodman one. Now, there's also then the fact that it's, again, the only thing we have going on right now other than the draft and ESPN with nothing else to talk about other than the draft again. Um is hyping this bad boy up like it's nobody's business. Um, it was hyped certainly when they dropped the doc, when they dropped the trailer and stuff. I believe during last year's finals, they, they were, dropped this thing a year early. A yeah. year early. Oh, it was supposed to be during the 2021 NBA Finals. Well, no, they started advertising it though. Like they right. dropped the trailer for it in right. 2019. Right, and and everyone was excited for that, but that doesn't. That's that's fun. That's organic hype right it wasn't this whole they didn't have this 
they didn't have this PR machine working for it at all times. I don't think that they would be doing the same things that they're currently doing, where Scott Van Pelt basically does a Talking Dead Last Dance post game show with Sports Center every night. Like there would be actual sports, there would be shit happening. Right. So they would, it would be part of it, and it would be interesting. But you wouldn't have Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman arguing over, you know, did Isaiah Thomas, you know, like was he a bad snub for the dream team in 1992. It's like, we're not rehashing 28 year old sports talk radio topics. So um, all of that sort of creates a bit of a malignment. The fact that it hasn't completely blown me away, even though I am the target audience, um, it has been a bit frustrating, but what are we, this is nitpicking. I mean, it, it really yeah, I was going to say, I'll, I'll be honest. Like I totally understand what you're saying. And I think that from, the perspective of like a journalistic documentarian mm-hmm. entity. Right. Maybe it's not like exceptional. Right. I mean, the, the issue is fucking awesome. To watch. It's fucking, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Honestly, I would prefer, and I'm glad that they're stacking the episodes because that's just helpful. Uh, what's become very clear is now that we are in a, with nothing live going on, everything is binge. And right. I'm having a hard time not watching six straight episodes of something <laughs> anymore. So I'm glad that they at least stacked them too fur, and maybe that just whets the appetite just enough. The uh, Another issue here is that ESPN has put out what I hold to be perhaps the greatest documentary ever made, and that's O.J. Made in America. Like, that is the epitome of – the, the genre, the one of the epitomes of the medium. I mean, it is a A plus Criterion Collection all around outstanding documentary. So you're holding it up against that. I mean, it's a hard act to follow, and um, this is doing a very good job in at least punching, you know, giving itself a chance. And it, it, who the hell knows? These next couple episodes could uh, could be so revelatory and interesting that uh, that yeah, it feels it feels like it's on on that par, but, um, did you just create a word there? Relevatory? No, relevatory in which to reveal. Okay. I, it sounds like a combination of relevant and revelatory. Oh no, you're right. It is revelatory. I just <laughs> shit. <laughs> no, I um, totally know what you're saying and I agree, but like, again, I just revel- come back revelatory, the revelatory, revel. Yeah, I know you're right. You're right. It's revelatory. This I just come I back to the fact check. That, like, I'm watching this, and I am just getting, like, an adrenaline rush every single time that this thing is on. Like, the music, Music's the highlights great. that are randomly in there, Michael Jordan. We have to talk about Michael Jordan's, like, current day interviews, because holy shit, are they incredible. <laughs> the level of don't give a fuck is next The level, level of, there has never been. Like, we thought that we peaked with Kobe Bryant. When it came to like superstar level of don't give a fuck, yeah, Michael no. Jordan is far exceeding the level of superstar don't give a fuck because he knows nobody can touch him. Like he's out here calling Scotty Burrell an alcoholic, like in the middle of the thing. Yeah. Like it's unbelievable. <laughs> Scotty Burrell's out here trying to coach the Southern Connecticut State University basketball team, <laughs> and Michael Jordan's making his life like a million times harder. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I'm not sure. 
I'm super in on that kind of stuff. I, and, and again, it's so difficult for sort of me to judge because I'm not even remotely close to mainstream and I, I get, you know, the sort of access, not like on the plane and stuff, but like you spend enough time around NBA players on a regular basis, you pick up stuff like that. You know, it just it, it's stuff that, that should be behind the curtain just comes through the cracks every now and again. And so, you know, you'll hear guys just talking like ruthless shit to each other in a locker room. And right, it, but like it, most people don't get that. You most know. people don't get that. So again, I'm, it's like, oh man, like I, I'm sure that that was a much bigger deal for somebody else than for me when I'm just thinking like, oh, I remember that time when they did that to Jordan Bell, essentially, in the Warriors <laughs> locker room. Just like, and then you think, and then you just kind of start thinking like, what's Jordan Bell doing right now? Like, poor guy. Um, who brought it upon himself, but nevertheless. Uh, Jordan Bell made money this year. Jordan Bell was in the NBA. Yeah, I don't know how much longer that's going to be the case, but um, he spent it all on candles. But uh, it's a, it's <laughs> time out, time out. Yeah. We're, we're going to have to hit pause on the last dance thing. He spent it all on candles. Do you not know the Jordan Bell Mike Brown candle scenario? No, no. <laughs> so um, everybody, or at least the Warriors, stay at the Peabody Hotel in Memphis when they play the Grizzlies, and uh, it's the one that has the duck walk. Thing. Um, and it's a very famous hotel, so they have like a gift shop of like Peabody Hotel items. And Jordan Bell, for whatever reason, decided to charge uh, an, uh, some items, which was the Peabody Hotel candle, <laughs> I think a couple of them, to assistant coach Mike Brown's room. And um, it didn't go over well. When uh, Mike Brown is like, I'm not paying for these candles. Like, who did this? Like, it was just a, it was a prank that went way wrong. It wasn't that funny to begin with, and then it was not accepted as a joke. And uh, I believe Bell got uh, suspended for conduct detrimental from the Warriors, and that pretty much ended his spell with Golden State. And uh, then he was with for candles Minnesota. for candles. Yeah, it was all about the Peabody Hotel Candle, which, by the way, uh, I, I have smelled a delightful scent. Uh, as a big fan of candles, personally, uh, you could you could do worse. Oh, my God. That's amazing. But you think about that kind of stuff, right? Those kind of right. – like, yeah, those are the kind of things you think about where you're just like, Jesus, he's really giving it to him. And then you realize, like, that is, you know, I don't know. I've spent or like Michael time Jordan around. walking onto the plane talking about how the Denver Broncos beat the Packers in the Super Bowl. We and all it, know Michael Jordan made a killing on that Super Bowl and, based and on his reaction. I think about Draymond Green a lot during these documentaries is what I'm trying to say. And uh, with the we Rodman. talk about Dre a little bit too because Dre has been – Dre is like four more days of quarantine away from <laughs> just saying some outwardly wild shit. Um, you're right. Uh, he's so close to – no, he's already crossed that line, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I will appreciate it because um, – <laughs> Dre lives with no caps lock. That's essentially his entire life. He just is just he he cannot help but tell the unfiltered truth about everything, including when he's dunking on himself. But um, Love yeah, it. no, it's Love it's good. So much. It's good shit. I need. I I I, I want to get away from some of the backstory stuff. I want to get away from the character development stuff that that the documentary is wanting to do, and I want to get into the nitty gritty final season. Um, ins and outs, machinations of of 
everything that was going on because I feel like that's the most engaging stuff, the behind the scenes stuff with that team, um, the the clips of you know when they're on the plane and then they're in the hallway and Kraus and Phil and Scotty you know, holding out and, and Dennis and all that stuff, and then it feels like every time it starts to really get going and you're kind of fully engrossed, they're just like, let's swing it back to right. Phil Jackson living in Montana. That's like, but yeah. here, here's the thing on that though, we're at the we're at the point now where they've gone through Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, and Phil Jackson already on these lookbacks. It's like I don't need right. the Ron Harper bio out of right. This. Like so, like, I guess my point is like I don't think we're gonna get that. Like I think we're finally right. now like episodes like five through eight probably gonna yeah. like get really into like the details of the season because they've set the table now. And, like, maybe we get, like, a Jerry Krause episode, which, by the way, the Jerry Krause stuff and the way oh that they God. just fucking disrespected that motherfucker, rest in peace, I guess. Yeah. But, like, that's unbelievable. Like, that's let's not – Let's not forget, though, that Michael started his, his Hall of Fame speech with Jerry Krause's here. I don't know who invited the motherfucker. I sure didn't. Oh, yeah. Like, it's very clear that Michael Jordan does not have – any respect whatsoever for the man that like built this team. So that stuff is really interesting to me. That stuff I want to see more of. I want to see more of the internal dynamics of Michael Jordan, just yelling at everyone in practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we know that that's going to come at some point. Listen, this will, this will all be worth it. If there is a video of Steve Kerr getting punched in the face by Michael Jordan. Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr has been like just so reasonable and eminently enjoyable. And then like the guy that you feel bad for watching this whole thing is John Paxson. Because like if John Paxson <laughs> just never would have taken over the Bulls, he would have been a legend in Chicago yes. for the rest of his life. And he would have made not as much money, two, to be fair. Two game winning shots for in the NBA finals. Or right. Series winning shots in the NBA finals in his goddamn career. And, and everyone uh, in Chicago hates him. Can't stand the fucker. Um, I will say this, as much as the Krause stuff um, hit different just as a child of Chicago, because there's one thing that unifies all Chicago area dads, and that is a deep hatred of Jerry Krause, and particularly a deep hatred of his hand-picked coaching choice, Tim Floyd. Um, my dad is not a, uh, a huge sports fan by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't think he could name more than a guy or two on the current Bulls. Uh, he's, you know, he'll watch some golf. I mean, that's, that's kind of where he's at. That dude hates Tim Floyd with a fiery passion. I mean, it is... It is deep and unrelenting. You can't say the name Tim Floyd around Doug Kurtenbach without getting like visceral anger from him because he blames Krause and Floyd for, okay, fine. Even if the team broke up, it's like, why do you get rid of Phil? Why do you get rid of Phil Jackson <laughs> out of all of it? Like you, you figure it out. But um, yeah, it's all of these things. It, it's mostly rehashing of memories and things I heard about and things that I technically lived through, but didn't understand. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, the bio stuff, like, again, I, I knew all that stuff. Like that's the stuff that, that you remember when you're 10 years old and you're, you're, you know, getting your book fair, Michael Jordan biography stuff. Like I'm right. looking for something that's not going to be in the scholastic edition of Michael Jordan. You know, a, a life above the rim. The, the Dan whatever. Wetzel child story. Exactly. Just please give me something other than that. That'd be great. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. This documentary is awesome. 
Yes. Yes. It's so we, much fun. We are allowed to nitpick because we are also apparently allowed to debate 28 year old topics as if they are brand new and fresh. So, uh, this is all part of our very strange sports ecosystem at the time. Nitpicking something that is unquestionably an A, uh, and wondering maybe why it isn't an A plus yet. But again, if we get that Steve Kerr getting punched in the face thing, I'll shut the fuck up and just say I, that. I want to talk about, I want to talk about a few things that just like really stand out positively. Yeah. Uh, I think that the style with which it's directed, I think that the editing is really good mm-hmm. in terms of propelling you through the story. The music is exceptional, as I said Music's earlier. It deserves a second mention. It's amazing. Yeah. And era appropriate, which I find is often yes difficult for documentaries. Uh, they'll yes. mix it up by a little bit, and you're eh. they they nailed it. That you know what you're talking about, especially for a documentary that swoops in and out of uh, eras so frequently. Uh, being very era appropriate with the soundtrack music is uh, clutch. And it's just super, like, it's super fun. I mean, just watching Michael Jordan reminisce about this, the mm-hmm. Jordan interviews in this thing have been off the charts. They are by far the most interesting thing in this documentary, and it's because. Michael Jordan speaks so rarely about right. topics like this. Um, uh, he yeah. does, though. Holy shit, is it candid. And it's always great. Every single time it flashes to that baby blue shirt that he's wearing, and yeah. you see the scotch or tequila or whatever it's it tequila, is. Tequila, yeah. It's his brand tequila and probably a $500 cigar. It's a $500, $500 cigar? I need all awesome. of that in my life. Yeah. I, I, want, I think ESPN should release a pay-per-view of the uncut Michael Jordan interviews. Yes. People will legitimately pay hundreds of dollars to see that if you show every single moment of his interview for the Last Dance documentary. Uh, ESPN, give me a 2% cut of that, please, because that is the best idea. They're giving it to you. That is the best idea anyone has come up with for you to continue to make money. You just call it the Jordan cut, and it's just Michael Jordan talking. Yes. For... 14 hours straight. So many people will watch it. I'd watch the shit out of it. So many people will watch it. I watch Michael Jordan. I'll say this. As much as we say Jordan doesn't talk candidly or openly about the Bulls and his path and all that stuff, that's accurate, right? Like, he did a Good Morning America thing as to, like, pat himself on the back. And, you know, to be fair, credit credit there, he, like, built a hospital in Charlotte, right? Right. The, The Michael Jordan Hospital. And he was drinking his own tequila at the hospital with Good Morning America. It was a fascinating thing. Like that was that was a big deal. That was a big deal there. I'm somebody who enjoys a cigar and so I will get cigar aficionado YouTube, like the algorithm will pop up. And he's done, I think, two long form sit down interviews with Cigar Aficionado. Fascinating stuff. That's my favorite thing in the world. Dude, cannot recommend the Cigar Aficionado. My man, my man won't sit down with uh Anyone well, else no other one than else. Cigar Aficionado. Oge, David Aldridge. I mean, he'd sit down for Ahmad Rashad, but Ahmad Rashad was on the payroll. Like, it, it's, uh, but he'll sit down with, he'll sit down with this old, crusty white dude from Cigar Aficionado because he knows that that guy's going to bring his best shit and Michael's going to be allowed to smoke it. It is, they're fantastic. Cannot recommend them enough. By the way, Cigar Aficionado, I don't subscribe, but they have incredible interviews. It's, it's just totally different. I feel like it's, uh, Everyone feels like they could talk extremely candidly because only rich other rich dudes are going to read it. 
a very good point. Like the oh, populace, the populace will never find out. But oh my I'm onto there. I'm onto them. <laughs> um. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about here is this uh, poll that Tim Bontemps did at ESPN. Mm-hmm. He went around to 20 scouts, executives, coaches, and asked Luka Doncic, John Morant, Zion Williamson, or Trey Young, which young star would you build around? Right. And I think the results came back basically what you would anticipate. Mm-hmm. Luka Doncic, one. Zion Williamson, two. John Morant, three. Trey Young, four. Right. That feels right to you, right? Feels right. I, I will say um, Luca got all but three first place votes. John ja Morant, in fact, got two first place votes. Zion only got yep. one um, yep. out of the twenty. Um, that makes sense. I don't disagree. I am surprised that only there was only one vote for Zion. Uh, I, I understand. A little bit I understand yeah. inherently why uh, there's certainly a higher injury risk. He is a post player, I guess, in an era of perimeter scores and the three point shot. Um, but Zion's marketability is so high compared even to a guy like Luca, who I think has a tremendous amount of marketability that hasn't yet been captured, at least in the United States. I don't know what's going on overseas. And um, maybe Ja has it too, but who's to say? Uh, Zion is a household name. Uh, He was very lucky. I guess all all three, all four of these guys are very lucky that they have uh, distinctive first names or a distinctive name to which they can be, you know, singular household names. But um, Zion's a phenomenon. And on the basketball side, yes, you go with Luca, but on the business side, I'm surprised that maybe that hasn't didn't seep through as much because I'm sure if you pulled owners, I bet Zion would win. Yes. I think I agree with you on that. I think he's hmm. I think long term he probably is more marketable than Ja Morant. Certainly for the next two years, he will be more marketable Z- than John Zion. I, Zion I don't, will be. I don't think yeah. it's even remotely. I mean, Jaws something, and we have to take it then away the context of Jaws in Memphis. Like if Jaws was on the New York Knicks, that would be a completely different beast. And so you kind of split the difference there. Um, same to a degree with, with – uh, with Zion, um, if he was on the Knicks or on the Clippers or Warriors or somebody like that, uh, it would be 14, 20 X what we're getting now. But my, my stance is I just think that Zion is already, already something, uh, pretty phenomenal when it comes to selling tickets, selling jerseys. I don't know selling shoes yet. Um, he's, he's something like a shack. And let's not forget that Shaq was a huge, huge deal uh, marketing-wise, and then obviously on the court as well. Uh, so, I, I, listen, there's no question that Luka is the right answer on this uh, as a player, uh, even though I'm very high on Zion. It's Luka. Luka is an MVP candidate already. Uh, he plays – he doesn't need to adapt his game to play the modern era of basketball. He is the modern game of basketball in so many ways. Uh, he's bigger and stronger than Ja and Trey Young. Uh, he's still playing essentially the same position, but he's he's already a full-grown man. He's already dominated other full-grown men. He's starting to dominate the NBA full-grown men. It is um, it's he, he he's unbelievably exceptional and. Uh, 
but again, the, the business side of things, I think that uh, Zion might have uh, been underrated here a little bit by by some of um, by some of the GMs and executives around the league. I'm surprised that only one person took Zion, but I definitely think that the answer is Luka Doncic. There's just no downside. Who would you vote, Luka? Who would you vote second? Because I can also see the argument for Ja in that he is hyper explosive. Uh, super fun. He's already, you know, shown that he can be a, a, a plus leader. Um, the ceiling is the roof for this guy to steal a, a line from Michael Jordan. Like he, he is, he is unbelievable. He's a little bit older, but uh, 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 unbelievable in in what it is he's been able to do so far in his professional career. Is it? Yeah. Is it close? I would take Zion. You would take Zion. It too. Yeah. What what separates? Um, if we're talking about just on court. Well, I mean, Zion, I, I've made the argument for months now that I think Zion's a top 10 player in the NBA right now. That's aggressive. I get it. But he's in a conversation of the elite of the elite um, as we as we currently talk. I had Jaws, an all-NBA caliber player, obviously Luka first team in that regard. Um, what, where, where are the separation points? Obviously, Luka's one. You're going to have Zion, two. How close are Zion and Ja in this situation in your eyes? I would say I think it's pretty clear cut that I would take Zion. Mm-hmm. Um, John Morant is going to make an All NBA team. He's going to make multiple All NBA teams, and he's going to be spectacular. Right. I think Zion's going to be the best player in the NBA at some point. Okay. Um, so obviously, then you also be- you also believe that that Luca is going to be the best player in the NBA at some point too. So. I think Zion's upside is absolutely higher than Luca's. Okay. But I think it's impossible to not account for the downside risk of Zion's injuries and like the potential for Zion to get hurt and not just take what is the surefire thing in Luka Doncic. Like you, you know that Luka Doncic is a top five, top three offensive player in the NBA right now. Right. You know yeah. that you have no reason to believe he's going to continue to have injuries. With Zion, I think there's reason to believe that he might get hurt. I think that's um, a pretty clear reason to believe that, considering it's already happened. Right. So, like, in terms of talent, I think Zion's going to be the best player in the world at some point. I do, if he okay. stays healthy. But yeah. I can't – it's the same thing when people would ask me – five years ago or whatever it was four years ago, would I rather have Carl Anthony Towns or Joel Embiid after Joel Embiid's 33 game rookie season? Mm -hmm. Again, I still would have been very comfortable taking Carl Anthony Towns and building around the certainty that that guy brought. Right. Is that the right play? Is that the right play? No, it wasn't because Joel Embiid is clearly exceeded Carl Anthony Towns as a basketball player. I guess the other part part of this is what what is the scope by which it's being viewed, right? Are we talking about when it's all said and done? Are we talking about the next five years, the next 10 years? These things matter because if it's Joel Embiid and you're saying next five years, it's like, well, okay, it's still Joel. Um, but fuck, I mean, Towns up until this year had been healthy. Uh, he hasn't won squat. 
he hasn't seemed to show a commitment to actually playing any defense, whereas Joel Embiid, when he's healthy and at his best, is arguably the NBA's best defender, arguably. Yep. Uh, he's in that conversation for sure. In the conversation for sure. And is an exceptional offensive player as well. Um, underrated almost as an offensive weapon. There's no question that you take Joel over Towns across the board, but when you add in injuries and the fact that, fuck, I don't know if this dude's going to be able to give me 60 every year, much less 82, um, that, that's a factor. That has to be considered. That has to be taken into consideration. If the gap wasn't as large as it was, we could have a more interesting conversation there. I don't want to extrapolate anything that happened with Zion this year. Um, that's not fair. I don't think it's prudent. It makes me kind of sad. Um, <laughs> there's, you're hoping, you're hoping it's one done, but he's a, he's a hefty lad who can jump very high. It just doesn't seem like a, a recipe for long-term success there. <laughs> I'm no bio, I don't understand biomechanics all that well, but, uh, I do understand weight and gravity and knees. And, uh, I don't, I don't think that it bodes well for some joint along, <laughs> along that chain. Um, it, whereas Luca has that deft you know, kind of chunky man YMCA game going on. I mean, him and James Harden are, are kind of rocking the same same thing, and um, it, it bodes well for, for longevity. So uh, there's something to be said there. It's, uh, it's nice, though, that we're at a point within the NBA where Trey Young is not even in this conversation and yet has a chance to still be really, really good and really, really interesting. I also hear your Trey yeah, Young. Yeah, I, I think Trey's exceptional. Like, I, I don't want to minimize Trey Young's place in this conversation. Like, I think Ja is closer to Trey than he is to Zion. But think about where we were a year ago in that conversation. I mean, you'd have Luca in there. There was still some argument. I don't think it was right, and certainly hindsight proves it incorrect. But there was still some argument on if the Hawks did the right thing. Um I don't think anyone argued that the Mavericks <laughs> came out like gangbusters, but if the Hawks yeah. did the right thing. Um, and, you know, who else was really in that conversation of the, the next great, you know, the next great superstar? I, I don't even remember. Yeah, it's a good point. It's fair and, now, and now you got four. Yeah, I think I don't, there are even more than four, to be honest. No, yeah. for sure, for sure, for sure. But, like... There are four that have separated themselves to the point where bomb temps didn't make it five. Um, that's his prerogative, and I don't think I disagree with him. Now, I don't know if anybody from this year's class is going to be changing changing nope. that and becoming the fifth. <laughs> I don't nope. know if anyone in 2021 has the potential to do that. That's your 2021 report, right? is a yes. 20, there, okay. there will be kids from 2021 that will enter this conversation, but no one from 2020. But, yeah, um, it's uh, – yeah, it's just it's it's a good place to be. You want the established stars, you want the up and coming stars, and you want uh you want the fresh new young stars that have a chance to get thrown. You have to have multiple generations of greatness for a league to be fully healthy. Um, and for uh, let's be honest, for a little bit there, I, I didn't feel like that was the case in the NBA. The parity has always lacked because it's a superstar driven league, but um. The parity in, in, in having superstars felt like it was lacking. You know, teams didn't even feel like they could have a guy who developed into one, who turned into that. Uh, basically, you were drafting a, a ready-made thing and hoping it all worked out, or you were getting super lucky, 
right? And you get a Kawhi Leonard uh, late, late in, you know, middle of the first round. So um, it's nice that the talent is such to where uh, there's equal opportunity in so many places other than apparently Chicago and New York. All right. The last thing here, do you want to, do you want to give some strong NFL draft takes? Hmm. I think the virtual draft is better than the Radio City Music Hall, Cleveland, you know, the bullshit that they do. Uh, I, I think that the pomp and circumstance that they put around the draft was always weird uh, inherently. As I've said, I think a couple of times already, like the, one of the silver linings of this whole pandemic is that so much pretense and nonsense is getting stripped away from things. This is an accelerator in so many areas of just day-to-day life, things that were eventually going to happen are being forced to happen now. Um, And I think that the intimacy of being in homes, being with family, um, Roger Goodell in in the chair, almost falling asleep between picks on day two, like there was a very real human element to it that honestly they had escaped by putting on these big ass shows over the years and turning it more and more into an event. Um, I think that, I think that that's a lesson that maybe more so than me saying, Oh, I thought the Packers did this thing stupid, which I think they did, or, you know, all the 49ers and the Raiders and the Broncos and the Ravens killed it and all that. Um, I think that the lesson from all this is, People just want to see people and they like things changing and they don't need, you know, fireworks. And I think they were going to use a pontoon boat to take players across the Bellagio fountains yeah, so like, they could stand on the stage. I don't want that. No I'm one wants that up, shit. I don't want that. That's this where is, I'm at. This is a conference call that they've now just added layers and layers and layers to. It was nice to get back to the conference call. And by the way, like, I think the biggest takeaway is um, – Incredible work by ESPN and NFL Network and, and all these people. I, ESPN might have overdone it with the uh, the heartbreaking and the the uh, the quote unquote human side of things. Uh, yeah, it got to the point where I, like I said, I turned it off yeah. and just purely started watching Bleacher Reports coverage. Right, which is very similar to like how the MLB draft goes, where it's like <laughs> they're just sitting in a studio and reading names, and they give a scouting report and then they move on to the next one. Like that's what I'm looking for. Uh, that's what I want. Uh, but I did enjoy at first the orchestration of all of that, having to get you know these iPhone sevens or whatever on tripods into everyone. Um, as somebody who very much values the fiber speed internet that I have here at my home, and it's what it's one of the reasons that I moved particularly to this island, to this part of town. Like it, I, I, I was over slow internet and paying Xfinity for anything, and so. I know the difficulty in bandwidth (laughs) in trying to do, you know, basically work from home telecommuting kind of stuff. And to put on a draft in that way is uh, crazy, crazy to me. And, and for all of these teams to be able to basically put their war rooms in the GM's living room, um, not that crazy because they have enterprise level IT, but uh, credit to ESPN, credit to Trey Wingo who had to orchestrate all of it. Um, I think that it went so well. They're not going to obviously, and hopefully, just because things get better, uh, they're obviously not going to keep the 
basics of that, but it, some of the elements that came through because shit, there was no other option. We have to do it this way. Um, I think that it was extremely informative and will make a better product uh, going forward. And I think that, you know, maybe us as content creators and sports fans and sports writers and talkers and shit, like that intimacy that they were able to tap into, whether accidentally or deliberately, is uh, so valuable. And that's something to really think about kind of going forward, uh, which which I enjoyed. I enjoyed learning something about the, the industry. Yeah, I think that that's all true. Uh, I think that <laughs> like, what, what, I was, want your, what Jerry was your Jones, favorite part of it? I want Jerry Jones drafting from a yacht every year. And I want Cliff Kingsbury's what a flex. Cliff Kingsbury's Scottsdale mansion is Dear exactly God. what I needed. I, I'm so envious. It was, so that nice. looks like the greatest place on earth. My, my favorite uh, comment on Twitter with that was, uh, it was, uh, what do you think Cliff Kingsbury does for a living? When uh, when you see this house and someone just responded, cocaine. Yeah, I was gonna say that's like, that looks like a drugman's house. It was like he doesn't have any photos. He doesn't have anything. It's just like, god damn, the amount of parties you could have at that place. Oh my god. Um, yeah, I mean, do you want to talk about picks at all? Like, I think that everyone way overthought it with Isaiah Simmons. Like, he's just a monster. Yeah, um, I, I I thought well, as somebody who's big on spark scores. And like general athletic testing, my, my, my I I have to imagine his spark score is like the highest ever. It's not. The, I I don't actually see the full on spark scores. What I do is I spend a lot of time on this site called Mock Draftable, which basically does spider charts for all of the uh, combine okay. scores and pro day stuff. But the way that it, I I eventually started using it in, in texts and phone calls is uh, his circle, and boy does he have a very full circle, <laughs> um, and. I would I spent a lot of time in just referencing other players that are currently in the NFL, right? So like Julio Jones is almost entirely ninety percentiles. And right. you're just like, well, of course. Calvin Johnson, same thing. And you just look at like some of the greats and it's just like these massive percentiles. You look at some of the guys who were fifth round picks that burst, and it's like, well, yeah, he was ninetieth percentile in all these athletic testings. And so he's playing some scheme in college that doesn't capitalize on any of that, comes to the NFL, gets into the right you know, system, right coach, and explodes. Like, that's the George Kittle thing. George Kittle, athletic monster, but he played at Iowa where they made him a blocking tight end because they right. don't like throwing the ball. Um, and by the way, them making him a blocking tight end also made him, like, an one incredible of the five best blocking tight ends in the NFL. He might be the best, but we can get right. into that conversation later. He's unbelievable. And it also shows that blocking isn't so much physical stature as much as it is just wanting to block somebody you have to have some physical stature but what you really have to have is a desire to actually do it um but so my, my stance is very clear um in the first round you need to be drafting an athletic freak who also has a high motor who also produced at the college level you have to get all three you can't sacrifice yeah. character athletic athletic upside or production yeah and, and like chase young should be the first defender taken Unquestionably, he he checks all of the boxes. Um, he, he's a high character kid. He he was dominant in college, and he's got a big old full circle. Like there was just no doubt about it. Same with Nick Bosa the year prior. Like quarterbacks, it gets really tricky. Though I do think that the athletic testing is going to become more and more valuable for quarterbacks, especially with the spreading out of the game and the deterioration of offensive lines and basically every defensive line having a bunch of dudes like Chase Young. <laughs> like 
Right. Uh, it, it, you're going to have to see more mobility at that position. I think that the floor for that went up massively in the last year, and next year it's going to be even more. I think Kyler Murray is going to win the MVP. I think that the entire sport, the, the entire position is going to change almost irrevocably and dramatically uh, really next year. We've already seen a lot of that change. Wait, you like, think Kyler hey, Murray is going to win MVP next year? Yes. Oh, wow, that's a take. It is I'll, a take. I'll get in on that with you because I'm sure I can get good odds on it. I haven't uh, been able to find odds yet, and I literally check every morning so that I can get them and plunk down a whole bunch of money. I love what Arizona is doing. I think yeah. they I think they got it figured the fuck out. And uh, that division is really tough. It's the toughest division in football, bar none. Uh, they got the Niners in the division, the Seahawks, who I don't understand what they were doing in the draft. Uh, just like getting Yeah, but there. that always happens. With that always happens, and so you don't overthink it, because they'll find some guy in the fifth round who makes up for the guy in the first round that they had no business taking in the first round, and we move on and on and on. Uh, the Rams still have a great coach. Their roster's a, a mess. Uh, I learned a lot about Wes Snead in that uh, they cut to clearly like the pool house at his house in Malibu, and um, their their training facility is in Thousand Oaks. So I learned a lot about Les Snead and his ability to make good decisions because he is somebody who has decided to take the drive. Malibu, if you can live in Malibu, live in Malibu, but not if you have to go over the mountains every day to yeah, get to sure. Thousand Oaks. I have done that drive a couple of times in my life because my, my grandfather lives in Thousand Oaks, and if you're going to drive up from L.A., you might as well take the one. Um, By Jesus. the way, I'm seeing, I'm seeing 10 to 1, Kyler Murray. 10 to 1? Yeah, that's not that great of us. It's not that great. I was excited for it to be like 20 to 25 to 1. Where'd you see that? Uh, it's on Bovada. I just did like a nah, quick Bovada, search. Bovada's got bad lines. You know how it goes. Um, I do, but nonetheless, like you might be able to find it. I'll still take 10 to 1. I feel strongly about it, but... um. Yeah, Arizona's got it figured out. Simmons is going to be a monster there. I, my frustration with that was that the draft pretty much went the way I thought it would go, more or less. Like, Tua to the Dolphins is going to be a fun, interesting thing. Uh, Herbert stands a chance now because he's not going to be thrown into a situation where he has to go now. He can get a little bit of right. seasoning. Tyrod Taylor's really underrated and more than capable of, of managing that team. Phillip Rivers sucked last year. Like, the notion that Tyrod Taylor isn't better than whatever Phillip Rivers was last year is laughable to me. Uh, so feel good about the Chargers situation, but like, I love Matt rule. Like I've known Matt rule for a long time. Uh, Matt rule is uh, a, a tremendous leader of men. I think he's a really smart football guy. Um, he, we, we go back to South Florida and him at temple getting prospects. Um, I don't understand what he was doing with Derek Brown. Derek Brown is a high motor guy. He had a lot of production at Auburn. He also has, Almost no athletic upside whatsoever. I mean, it is laughable, some of the combine numbers and stuff he put up. Uh, he's he's a run stopper that you drafted seventh. I mean, it was like a full-on Dave Gettleman move. And I got a good le- number for you. And you leave Isaiah Simmons on the board? Get the fuck out of here. You just lost Luke Keekley. Like, go out and get yourself a rangy middle linebacker. Yes, I totally agree with you. They should have just taken Isaiah Simmons. But more importantly, at MGM on yeah. their New Jersey uh, mm-hmm. New Jersey app, you can get Kyler Murray at 25 to 1. Hot damn. I am ready so, yeah. to fucking We're good. Rumble. We're good. This is, is okay. going to be great. Yeah, I love Isaiah Simmons and totally agree with you. The Panthers, like, way overthought this. Um, and it was very clear that the Panthers wanted to just remake their defense. I like where, a lot of the other guys that they got on defense. 
Like, I like their later round picks when you can then sacrifice on-field production. Like, that's the thing with day three. You're picking up a guy with athletic upside or you're picking up a guy who produced a bunch in college but isn't that super, well, super They athlete. went out and got, like, Uter Gross Matos and yeah. Jeremy Chin. And they Chin, got Chin's the, fun. Chin's going to be fun. Yeah, and they got the kid from the XFL, Kenny Robinson. Big like, fan of Robinson's game. Like that's This defense bad. is going to be really good. I'm not worried. Like, I think they just way overthought the Simmons versus Brown thing. Yeah. Um, I think people – I don't know what the Raiders were doing either. I, I think well, people like, started I, I, to overthink Jerry Judy too because Jerry Judy's a monster. I disagree then, like, with that. I disagree with the Jerry Judy thing because Jerry Judy's a slot receiver. This was my hot take. This yeah, I don't, hot, I'm hot fine take. with that though. Well, yeah, but like you have to understand where I'm coming from. Like my hot take, and it got me in some hot water around these parts because the Niners were clearly targeting a receiver. But like I got to look at it from directly the 49ers' focus and understanding their offense. And I'm like, there's no way Jerry Judy can play the position that they need him to play, which is outside X, you know, split end receiver. He like he can't. Do you do think it. Debo Samuel can't do that? Debo's a Z receiver, so that's a that's a different that's a different beast. The X and the Z are very there's a big differentiation between the two of them. So it's Brandon Ayuk, the 25th pick that they traded up to get. He's the guy who then will probably be the X. And the X they saw last year with Emmanuel Sanders when he came in, um, how that changed it. And, and Ayuk has a big old circle. By the way, Emmanuel Sanders, yes, he's about 10 years separated from it, and he's coming off of an Achilles injury that he had in uh, Denver, but Emmanuel Sanders was like a combine freak. And same yes. with uh, Pierre Garcon. Those are two guys. Everyone thinks, oh, well, Kyle Shanahan, he loves the extra receiver. Well, yeah, you'd love the extra receiver position too if you had Julio fucking Jones. But there was no Julio Jones in this draft. So then you look at the other guys that Shanahan has had playing extra receiver, and it was Garcon and it was uh, Emmanuel Sanders last year. You look at Ayuk, he is absolutely perfectly in that exact same mold. So I'd expect him to be the starter there. That move made a lot of sense. Going out and getting Javon Kinlaw out of South Carolina, who's basically an unrefined super athlete who's just massive and has this huge, you know, he can probably And was jump. wildly productive, by the way. Wildly productive, because he was just just outdoing every, every – you couldn't put boys in front of him. Like, you needed full-grown men. Right. And in that system, which is – they have this bullshit, like, all gas, no brakes nonsense there. But, like, you watch it and you're like, yeah, these guys are almost, like, reckless in how aggressive they are in just trying to shoot gaps and stunting and stuff. Like, there's no refinement there. It's just athletic freaks getting, you know, getting off the line as fast as they can, doing a move maybe, and trying to get to the quarterback. Like, there's no Bill Belichick containment or anything. It's kill, 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 kill. He'll fit in perfect. But, um, yeah, the Raiders, I, I, don't mind the, I don't mind the Ruggs move. Like, I like I, – I think Ruggs yeah, I would have taken, is fine. Again, like, this is the team that prioritized getting Antonio Brown last year. And, and like Judy, and Jerry Judy Judy has a, the closest thing I've seen to Antonio Brown in college. I agree with you. I, I, well, I did agree with you until I had a, a buddy of mine um, who has spent a lot of time at Alabama and now is in an NFL front office when I was talking about Judy. And I go, I feel like Niners, you know, he asked me what he th- I thought the Niners would do. And I say, well, I think they probably, you know, go with Judy given this and that. And he goes, they're not going to go with Judy. And I'm like, okay, well, why? And he goes, watch the tape again. And notice where he's at in situations where it's clear it's clearly going to be man-to-man coverage, and Alabama hit him in the slot every single time. Well, and Alabama ran like that crazy RPO offense, 
for where sure. it was for sure. like a lot of it, a lot of Tua's stuff was just I like, think, I think Judy will be wildly the productive. One read pass, and then like maybe a second read. I think, I think Judy will be wildly productive with the Broncos because he'll be in the slot. Now, I don't yes. like the fact that they went out and got Hamler, too, because he's a slot guy as well, and we'll see. We'll see. But he doesn't – I think you move guys in and out, I think that they're going to be in a really good position. He's going to be a good player. He just doesn't have the athletic upside, right? So now you're relying entirely sure. on route – you're relying on route running, which is extremely valuable, but kind of a crapshoot. And, again, if you're picking in the first round, I don't like guys who don't have the athletic upside. I want the production and the upside because you're, you're drafting a day-one starter – if he's in the top 50 picks. So uh, I was just kind of down on him in, in that regard with rugs. It's like, you can't teach that speed. I think that maybe in a different offense than, than the Raiders, but like uh, you, you see Tyree kill twice in your division every year. Like, you, I mean, you, if we're being, if we're being real about it, like I'm only really comparing Judy to rugs because they played on the same team. Like I would have taken CD lamb and like, just been happy. I'm surprised Lamb fell. That said, it's so hard to get a read on Big 12 receivers. I mean, it it's hard to get it's a read fair. on pretty much any receivers, but then you watch him. At least he was outside the numbers most of the time. They did hide him in the slot every now and again so that he can get free release, but he was getting free release on the outside too. So you have no idea what he does against a press. Um, I would have bet on it, but again, now you're betting on it. True, Uh, you are so it was really tough it was a really deep receiving class the high end just wasn't there and i i I hate i hate that when people are like oh it's a really i'm sure you 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 run into the same thing all the time like this was as deep of receiving classes as i can remember there were uh the guy was oh yeah we're we're running into it we're running into it in the nba draft with all the point guards because there are like 16 point guards that have a chance to go in the first round this year but but as but in the same situation, that doesn't mean that there's another Steph Curry or another Kyrie Irving, right? Like there's not 100% right. Trans- Just because it's deep doesn't mean that it, it, it it's top heavy or uh, the wrong it does, that it has the high end. It could start at 80, you know, as opposed to 100, and still have a bunch of dudes between 80 and, and 75. Um, whereas no, you know, sometimes right. sometimes you just have a guy who's at a 95, and then you drop down, and everybody else is a 60. I don't. I don't know. Um, I loved a lot of the receivers in this class, but I I, I wasn't shocked that it was uh, a little less chalk than a lot of people made it out to be. And this tight end, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could go on for literally hours. Do we do we want to do the Damon Arnett thing real quick? Yeah, let's do the Damon Arnett thing because I like I think, Arnett. But I think you, that's the worst pick in the draft. I. It's hard to argue. I'm not a big fan of the playing the value game thing because if he's the right pick, no one remembers if he was overdrafted or underdrafted. It doesn't help that I'm not optimistic. Like, it it doesn't help that he's always going to be the guy who was overdrafted. And so now he has to live up to a standard that, frankly, he should have never had thrust upon him. But um, listen, my stance is this. Cornerback in general is a complete crapshoot. There's only like two schools in the entire country that play a system that is transferable at all to the NFL, and that's mm-hmm. Ohio State and sometimes LSU. Uh, yeah. Certain systems, Alabama. Um, it's I only trust Ohio State cornerbacks. Uh, I wouldn't have drafted Akuda as high as he was drafted, but like he was far and away the best. 
wasn't that high on Henderson. Like, I just don't know who's good and who's not. And the athletic testing, the spark scores and the, the circles and all that stuff, it, it, there's no clear indication of, like, I can't figure out who's what, supposed what to be good. What does Damon Arnett's spark score look like? Because I would imagine it, it's not great because he was, ran like a 4-5 at the combine. And it wasn't like great. Doesn't have super long arms. And if you just watch the tape, like, Damon Arnett, like, I watch damn you near watch every Ohio State yeah. game. Like, this, this is one of the things that I feel pretty good talking about. Mm-hmm. That man got burnt a little bit too often, especially the last three years. And then, like, I want to say that he turns like 24 this year. Oh, I don't know about so, that, like, but yeah, he might. He might. Yeah, he turns 24 in September. Yikes! I, I so, thought like, I thought he was a fringe first round prospect, and I was very high on him compared to everybody else. And that's just because I thought that he was over aggressive at Ohio State, and so he got burned a bunch. Um, I don't know if you can coach that out of him or not, but I, I, I just. I think that it's easier for Ohio State cornerbacks to transfer to the NFL than it is for anybody else where basically you're just rolling a dice and hoping it comes up your end. So if you're in the first round and you go to Ohio State, okay, I wouldn't have been shocked at 32. 19 was ridiculous, um, and let's be real, he was probably a third-round prospect. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Um is there what, – what did you think about K.J. Hill going as late as he did? Because I thought that was, that was a surprising. minor travesty. I really like K.J. Hill. Yeah, he's like an incredible slot receiver. His hands yeah. are unbelievable. He's yeah. very good at getting separation. He'll play for the – like, I think he'll make the Chargers. I thought he was a day two, day three option just for a team that decided, like, listen, high floor, low season. I figured he'd go, no like, in the fourth round. I figured yeah. the, tool, the tool stuff just wouldn't be there. Like yeah. teams would be like he's five eleven and um, he ain't bursty, very small and like he's he didn't run like a wild time. I don't no. think in terms of the forty either. So like I figured he'd go like round four or five. Round seven's nuts. That dude can play. Yeah, his I, hands I, are unbelievable too. To be fair, I mean he had an eleventh percent broad jump, sixteen percent, sixteenth percent vertical, seventeen. He ran a four six forty, which for a right. wide receiver is slow as hell, um, especially a small one. Yeah, I mean. He's got big hands. I, like, I get why he fell. I do. Like, I'm not going to sit here and deny that. Like, and again, we're talking about him. Oh, he should have gone, you know, maybe early fifth round as opposed to He's still a day three guy. Round. I thought he could have snuck yeah. on to day two just because he produced so well. And he was clearly Ohio State's go-to guy. Like, when they needed a play, like, get the ball to Hill. They needed a first down. Yeah. Olave was the guy that, like – Yeah near the end of the season, like, really emerged as just being a monster. But, you know, when you need a first down, you need seven yards, K.J. Hill's the guy. What was wild to me is how the first three picks of the draft all spent time at Ohio State. (laughs) Yes. Like Damn right they did. No, it's just like, holy shit. Like, that Urban Meyer guy might be a sleazebag, but that dude could croot. (laughs) Yep. Yes, he can. Um, The last thing I want to talk about is the Packers. How, How wild was the Packers draft? Anytime that you draft a fullback in the third round and it's not even remotely close to the top story, you fucked up. Yeah, I think that this was one of the worst drafts I've seen in a long time. The 49ers traded up to 25 because they thought the Packers were going to move up to take a wide receiver. Yes. And then they took Jordan Love. I do wonder if, like, maybe there's a chance they were going to take Ayuk and then pivoted. That's, that's, That's... 
that's that's something that the Raiders have done a couple two years in a row where they've drafted just after the Niners and they've both had the same boards essentially. So like the year that the Niners took Mike McGlinchey, I believe number nine, they took Colton Miller like a pick later because they were like, oh, we really want a McGlinchey. And then the Raiders had Bosa, as everyone should have, number one on their board. And then they didn't get him, so they're like, ah, oh, who's the next best defensive end? Even though the gap was tremendous, they're like, I guess we'll take Farrell. And it's like, no, you guys aren't very, you guys aren't very good at this. Like, at least the the management of the asset. Um, I think the same shit kind of happened with the Packers there, where it's like, ah, oh, we didn't get the guy that we wanted. All right, who's next on our board? And it's like it's a quarterback. It's like don't think too hard about it, <laughs> except for the fact that you have to pay Aaron Rodgers like. $40 million a year for the next three See, years. See, like, that's the part that fucks me up with it because wild. I'm like, why I think it's a bad move, it's frankly, a terrible move. is because like, it has nothing to do with the fact that you think, if you think Jordan Love is good, if you think Jordan Love's bad, it has to do with the fact that the most valuable asset in football right now is a quarterback on a rookie-scale deal. And you're wasting it. You're wasting that because you literally can't get off of Aaron Rodgers without – blowing $35 million on your salary cap sheet for the next two years. And then even the year after that, I'm pretty sure, it's like $20 million. So Don't you're losing me. the most valuable part of this. I, I'm down on Aaron Rodgers in general. Like, I spent a lot of time studying Aaron Rodgers this past year because they played the, the 49ers in the NFC Championship game, and I think Aaron Rodgers kind of sucks now. Like, Yeah, I, you're not an Aaron Rodgers guy. I think not, he's still fine. I think Aaron. I think Aaron Rodgers at a time could have made the argument. His peak was he was as good as any quarterback in the history of the NFL at his at the peak of his powers. Those powers are long past him. He plays chicken shit football these days. He looks more interested in protecting his passer rating than he is about making plays. I mean, he is. It, it's like passive aggressive football. I'm so out on him, um, and I think. The floor is out on him. The problem is, okay, fine, you're done with him. Like, is he going to retire? Like, you can't get off that deal. No one's going to – no one – I don't think there's a team in the NFL who's dumb enough to take on the full brunt of Aaron Rodgers' contract. Very strong disagree. Very strong disagree. (sighs) Just because there are stupid teams. A, there are stupid teams, and B, he's still, like, a top 16 quarterback in the NFL, even if you want to be – uncharitable okay i i I don't want i don't want to get into it (laughs) i'll say this uh i i would bet you that if that when because what mike sando does the quarterback tiers every year right yeah i will guarantee you he's in the top 16 i i I don't think i don't think that you i I think sando's wrong i I don't think that that's incorrect but it's not it's not going to be sando it's going to be the, him reaching yeah. out and doing votes from NBA yeah. front offices, no, you're right, you're right, NFL you're front right. offices. You're right, you're right. And I guarantee you he's going to be in the top six. I, I think Aaron Rodgers is going to make a great Las Vegas Raider, uh, and he'll really enjoy throwing it deep to Henry Ruggs uh, once every three months because he doesn't want to throw it deep ever because that's where interceptions happen, and interceptions are bad for his NFL best passer rating all time. And I think he cares more about that than actually winning games. Ooh, that's a take. We're going to end it on that take. <laughs> We're going to end it on that take, Dieter. Tell the people where they can find your work. Uh, at Dieter on Twitter, uh, San Jose Mercury News for the time being. We'll see. I've got uh, an NBA mock draft coming tomorrow on Wednesday. I'll have a podcast about it maybe on Friday or so. We're back podcasting. Like I said, 
like there's nothing going on in sports right now. It was my birthday like a week and a half ago. We needed some time here. At the we'll, game figure game we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out on the back end. Like when shit happens, Sam will talk about it. Yeah, Just right. Like be, be cool. We're all good. We're all good here. So keep it locked here. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.